TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Nerds Podcast, Episode 62. This episode is brought to you by Saris Cycling Group. For over 25 years, Saris has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. There's no better time of year to celebrate bike friendliness than May, National Bike Month. To learn more about what Saris is doing locally to get more people on bikes, visit sarisparking.com slash bike nerds. Plus, they're giving away water bottles to everyone who signs up for their newsletter through the end of May. Take it all in at sarisparking.com slash bike nerds today. Please, please, please sign up. Win one of these water bottles. Uh, Sarah and I have been using them for quite some time now, and they are wonderful. And it's okay to get rid of some of your other water bottles uh, in case you you can't take any more in. These Saris ones are top-notch. They look good, uh, and they don't uh, have that funny taste of that juice that you accidentally left in your water bottle for a little bit too long a couple weeks ago. Uh, these will be fresh, clean, uh, and will be able to hold all of your water needs. So you may notice at this point, but it's just me this week. Sarah, uh, it was not able to join us this morning. I've got two theories about where she is. Either she's saving kittens from, from, from being stuck in a tree. I have this image in my mind that there's a, there's a family of new kittens who innocently climbed a tree to see what was up there and they can't get down. And now Sarah is stuck this morning trying to figure out how to help these kittens to the best of her ability. That's what's one image in my mind of what Sarah's actually doing. The other image is that Sarah is off having a great time with friends eating food and drinking wine. Uh, I think for the sake of uh, our audience and for the sake of my own well-being, I'm gonna. I'm just going to say that she wouldn't do that to us, y'all. She she wouldn't just leave us for food and wine. She's got to be rescuing some kittens. Um, and so hopefully next week on the show, uh, we can get Sarah on here to tell us all about the kittens. Uh, I've I've just come back from Memphis. I, sp- I spent five days in Memphis hanging out with Sarah, seeing her. Uh, we didn't do any podcast recording uh, while we were there, which is which is unusual, but it was also really nice just to hang out, not to have to be somewhere at a certain time in a certain place with microphones, ready to talk to people. Uh, it was good to be back in Memphis, good to be back in a place where there's some moisture in the air, uh, but you might be able to tell from my, the sound of my voice, but I, I've caught a little cold. And so now that I've come back to Colorado, I've, I'm coughing, I'm sneezing. I'm congested. My voice is about three octaves deeper than it normally is. Uh, so, th- you know, that's the price that you pay for seeing your friends, having some fun. Uh, I was in Memphis visiting with some, with some colleagues from People for Bikes. Uh, had the, had the great opportunity to serve both as, as, you know, to serve as a tour guide to them, to show them, uh, all of the things about the city that I love. Uh, we woke up one morning and they were wondering what was happening for breakfast. And I said, we're getting, we're getting a lift and we're going to Gibson's Donuts. Uh, and they were a little perplexed about why we would, you know, have to drive to get some donuts and 
I explained on the way that these were the absolute best donuts in the entire face of the universe. And uh, they did not disappoint. I, I hyped it up really high. And so as we were approaching, I was like, oh, no, I've, I've done I've done a disservice to Gibson's Donuts. I've elevated this this uh, concept in their minds too much. They can't handle it. Uh, but I ha- I'm pleased to report that, that I did not disappoint. Gibson's Donuts always come through. I'm not sure why I was worried because, you know, even, even celebrities like Alton Brown think that these are the best donuts in the world. And they for sure are. So if you haven't been to Gibson's Donuts in uh, the city of Memphis, uh, out on Mindenhall Road, uh, do yourself a favor. Book a plane ticket to Memphis today. Go straight from the airport. Get a donut. Go right back to the airport. Fly back home. That's really what you need to do. You know, one thing that I know about having moved to Colorado is that the donuts here are terrible. They're, they they just suck. Uh, you just cannot get a donut that compares to Gibson Donuts. So be warned, if you do make that one-day trip to Memphis just for donuts, uh, it's going to ruin your donut eating experience everywhere else in life. You're just going to have to move to Memphis so you can be close to them. I can remember uh, as, a, as, a, as a young man uh, riding bicycles in Memphis, we would always go to Gibson's really late at night because after like 11 p.m., all of the day's donuts go on sale for like a quarter. And so, you know, if you rolled, if you rolled up at the Gibson's at 11 p.m. with a with a group of people on bikes that's 20 or 30 people deep. Uh, you can get a lot of donuts for a couple bucks uh, and enjoy enjoy the ride, knowing that you're burning all of those calories uh, on your way um, back to your house. Uh, had a great time at the Tennessee Bike Summit, which was being held in Memphis. Got to see a lot of really of, of my old friends and colleagues working across Tennessee uh, to make Tennessee the best uh, city for cycling in the American South. And that's that's my that's my contention and that's my belief. And I think that the people that were in that room, the people that are thinking about uh, you know how to make uh, a very conservative state, how to make a very car centric state uh, in the South, great for bicycling. There were so many new people there um, that I that I didn't recognize from from small communities across Tennessee uh, that I didn't know had these really powerful movements about changing transportation and thinking about bicycling playing a role. Uh, I had the opportunity to give the the morning keynote address. Uh, if you go to the Tennessee Bike Summit. Uh, if you search for them on Facebook, they they have a live recording of that. So if you if you just don't get enough of me on the podcast every day, uh, you can go there and you can see uh, you can you can see that presentation. Uh, Sarah also uh, presented on Explore Bike Share with some with some of our friends. You know, Roshan Austin, who was was on an early episode of the Bike Nerds podcast. She was a, she was a co host along with our with our friend Naomi Dorner. Roshan got to speak as well. It was it's great to. See sort of to sit in the audience and listen to Sarah and Roshan talk about bicycling uh, in a way that that I can't and never was able to do and won't be able to do. Um, it's a really inspiring story to learn about Roshan, learning to ride a bicycle just a couple of years ago, um, becoming an advocate and, and a leader in her neighborhood in South Memphis and transforming the ways in which people are thinking about you know, how they move around their community and transforming ways that they think about safety and transforming ways they think about traffic. Uh, it's all being led by local community people like Roshan. Uh, Sarah's doing uh, uh, an amazing job uh, at, at launching Bike Share. It continues to be you know, a model for Bike Share systems across the country before they've even launched. And I, th- and I think that's that's a really important facet of the work, the foundational work that Sarah's doing. So I know she's not here. She wouldn't let me say that if she was on the air, but I'm just going to brag on her a bit because I think uh, that her leadership 
and her guidance of what, about what's happening in Memphis came through a lot at the Tennessee Bike Summit. You know, Memphis was Memphis. It was hot. It was humid. It rain, poured rain a couple of days. It got a little wet. Uh, my final day, you know, I was, uh, yeah, which was yesterday, I got to catch up with some folks. I had breakfast with some people, and then I had some more friends call, and then I had second breakfast. I ate two breakfasts yesterday. Um, also, not something you do uh, a lot in, here in here in Colorado. Not just was it not. It just wasn't a breakfast. It was like biscuits and gravy kind of breakfast, right? You know, the breakfast that like sticks to the insides of your stomach. Uh, it was amazing. The downside is I've got to go on a 300-mile bicycle ride this afternoon just to burn off all of that gravy. But, man, what a trip. What a great time. I'm so glad I got to see uh, got to see Anthony Syracuse, who was our guest last week. Um, get to, Got to see Sarah. Got to see all of the great bicycling advocates. Uh, shout out to my friend, Nick Euler. Uh, Nick is the, is the person that replaced me at the city of Memphis. Uh, he's now working for the city engineering office. He is you know, doing, uh, continuing to do the hard work. And, and in fact, I was so impressed, you know, Nick is, is actually going to be doing, he's, as it pans out, Nick is going to be far remembered, far beyond whatever work I did at the city of Memphis for his ambition, uh, for his level of expertise, for, for the, uh, you know, just the, the value of the work and the kind of content that he's creating. I was so impressed with what Nick's doing and I feel really good about, you know, the future of bicycling in the city of Memphis under his leadership. Uh, on this episode, we had an opportunity to bring in a, a new guest, Christine Bachman Sanders. She is uh, seeking, uh, working on her PhD at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Uh, and Christine uh, specializes in thinking about, you know, the role that bicycling plays, particularly amongst uh, the, in the, in the late 1890s. Um, so she's, she thinks about and, and examines the relationship between uh, American imperialism, uh, queer studies, race, class, gender, sexuality, feminism, all in this sort of time. And, 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 and through her experience and work uh, as an avid bicyclist, she, you know, and I hate that phrase, avid bicyclist, and I just used it. I just, uh, I'm sorry about that. But Christine has done some for real avid bicycling. Like she took a bicycle tour across the U.S. on a tandem bicycle with her partner. That's mind blowing. And then they did this big European tour as well uh, by bicycle. So, so Christine's got some bicycling chops, uh, and it led her to really think about the you know what she was studying uh, around sort of you know the interactions between identity and and who people what makes people who they actually are uh, and bicycling the bicycling experiences from her own life uh, really sort of drove her to think about and look into the ways in which bicycling served as a symbol of progress and a social technology uh, during a period of time where American manifest destiny and imperialism uh, and into a word that we talk about a lot in the podcast on the episode, the, the conquest uh, that bicycling sort of provides and fills into uh, was a really interesting study of the history of bicycling. Uh, I'm so glad that Sarah and I you know, sort of decided to go down this history of bicycling route, route uh, so that we could really understand, you know, you know, a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, uh, the, the kinds of discussions, the kind of role that bicycling played in people's lives here in the U S and, and like always, we wor- sort of work into a discussion about what does that mean for advocates today? And, and I think Christine, uh, maybe more than some of our past guests really has a really, 
keen insight on, on the ways in which you know the lessons of the past, the lessons of a hundred years ago, uh, are still relevant today. And so, I really hope everybody enjoys this episode. Uh, Sarah will be back on next week. Uh, you won't have to listen to me just ramble on for another hour uh, in that. So, with that, let's hit it. So welcome to the show. I, I was wondering if you know, if you could talk to us real quickly about, you know, like what you like to do regarding bicycling today. Are you a are you a person who bicycles on a regular basis? I am absolutely yes. I am an avid commuter and touring cyclist. Have been for about ten years now, um, and that's how I really got started into. The, the research that I do was through bicycle touring, especially. I've been on two major bicycle tours, one across the United States. Um, that was in 2013. And then more recently in 2015, I took three months to bicycle through the UK and France, Switzerland, Germany, and Denmark. Whoa. Yeah. Like, not just like a touring cyclist, but like accomplished <laughs> I guess. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. I'll take it. Now, now, the journey that you did across the U.S., was that for a specific um, reason? You know, I know that there's like groups that like they, they, they tour the U.S. and they do sort of workshops and work along the way. Or was this just like purely recreational just for fun and exploring? This was purely selfish. Yeah. No, this was just me and my partner. Um, and we, we've both been cyclists for a long time and we both had the summer off mm -hmm. and, um, decided, okay, you know, this is something we've been wanting to do for a very long time. So we were living in New York City at the time and we packed up, actually, we have a golden tandem not solid gold, painted gold tandem. <laughs> and uh, we thought that would be kind of a riot to bike across the U.S. on. So we loaded it up and took a train from New York City to San Francisco um, and then biked San Francisco north to Seattle along the coast, mm -hmm. which if you're listening and you're interested in doing this kind of tour, I always recommend going south along the West Coast rather than North. We had <laughs> some pretty brutal winds. Um, but then from Seattle, we, we did the Northern route along the Adventure Cycling Association's maps, yeah. which were fabulous, um, and kind of meandered our way back down to Boston where our families are. Wow. And, yeah. on, and all on a tandem. All on the tandem. Yeah. You know, that's pretty, you're like, you keep up in the game. I feel like I'm going to ask another question. You're going to say, like, you did it one-legged or something. But people talk about sort of riding tandems with their partners, right? Like, mm -hmm. whether that you can, you can identify whether or not your partner is the one for you <laughs> after you take a, a bicycle ride on a tandem bicycle. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, we had had quite a lot of practice. We bought this tandem. This tandem has had a long life. We bought this tandem used in 2010. Um, I think it's a 1994 Trek that's had lots and lots of changes and iterations. We've customized it quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we sort of specialize in living in small spaces together. That's been our sort of superpower. So um, the tandem was really kind of a fun fit for us because we can sort of talk easily throughout the day. Um, we don't have to worry about pacing. Um, it just it just fit us really well. We had done some shorter tours in Canada and some weekend tours on the East Coast before embarking on this huge, huge tour. So we knew it was going to work for us. It wasn't a risk at that point, but it's not for everybody. <laughs> Definitely not. 
I have some I have some crazy tandem stories, but I won't share them now because this is really <laughs> about you. Uh, that's 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 really amazing. It's really impressive. Uh, I you know I was just in Memphis this past weekend, and this past year they opened up a bridge, a bicycle and pedestrian bridge that crosses the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. And um, I was thinking about you know the impact that touring cyclists that that that, that facility will now have sort of on that southern region of that of that mm. route um, yeah. because there's not another there's not another crossing for people on bicycles for like a hundred miles in either direction of the city wow. of Memphis. And now there's this whole dedicated pathway that goes uh, right over the Mississippi um, down in the Delta. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, you are now at the university of Minnesota mm-hmm. pursuing a PhD. That's right. Nice. Yes. In American studies. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, yeah, tell me a little bit about that. And then also tell me, you know, you sort of mentioned just a second ago that this bicycle touring is really sort of what led you into the work that you're doing today. And maybe you can talk about uh, that link there for us as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I'm I, I'm at the University of Minnesota doing a PhD program in American Studies, which really essentially means that I get to study whatever I want in whatever way I want. It's an incredibly flexible program, which I love, very interdisciplinary. Um, and the way this all kind of got started is um, so let's see back in 2013 immediately after doing this cross US bike tour um, I was in the midst of doing a master's program at the time at um, New York University and so that was between this two years master's program so I came back after the tour and I was still doing some coursework to finish up my master's and um, I was taking a class on what was it now it was um, like Turn of the turn of the twentieth century gender politics. I my my background is in feminist theory and queer theory mostly. So I was taking this gender politics class, and we were reading all kinds of um, sort of early sexologist readings from the time. It was all very kind of complicated understandings of sex and gender um, and how to make sense of all of it, uh, sort of from the nineteenth century, early twentieth century perspective. Um, and for some reason in these readings, I kept on coming across the bicycle as this, um, as an example of a sort of alternative lifestyle, as an alternative future. The bike sort of seemed to symbolize for a lot of these forward-thinking scientists and doctors and, you know, free lovers. Um, The bicycle seemed to sort of symbolize a future that was utopian, that was different from their lived realities. And that was really interesting to me. I didn't really totally figure out how that how that would fit into the history I was learning about. But I was really captivated, especially being an avid cyclist myself and coming off of this tour. So I remember coming home one day after doing some reading and I kind of Googled, you know, bicycle, turn of the century, gender politics, and up popped um, the full text PDF version of Frances Willard's A Wheel Within a Wheel, which she wrote um, in 1894, 1895. And it's, if you haven't read it, it's this fantastic short um, kind of writer's manual um, written by Frances Willard, who, of course, is at the time the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she is incredibly influential in a whole slew of public and social reform at the time. This is kind of progressive era America. Um, She is incredibly concerned with temperance. That's her sort of main cause. But she's also concerned with child welfare and with women's rights and, um, you know, a whole whole bunch of progressive reforms. 
And the bicycle for her becomes a really important metaphor for communicating the kind of liberation that she envisions in, in this new world that she's trying to imagine. So the book was just amazing. I loved reading it for, for you know, more than anything for its language. Um, and this kind of segues into what I'm doing right now, which is in her book, she describes bicycling as a sort of metaphor of world conquest. And she's, she's sort of using this language, I think, to signal a kind of empowering version of conquest. I mean, I think that she's really finding it's specifically written for women cyclists. And, um, and I think that she's really imagining women as being able to, through this new mobility of the bicycle to kind of access and conquer um, a new space and also, you know, their own bodies, their own kind of political momentum. Um, but I was just really interested by her use of the word conquest here. And I feel like that's something that cyclists still use, you know, like when I'm, when I'm doing a particularly difficult ride and I'm like, you know, when I was in Switzerland and I was biking up the Alps, you feel a sense of conquest. You sort of conquer that mountain mm. as you ride mm -hmm. over it, you know, so that, that kind of resonated in some interesting ways for me. Um, so I kind of pursued, I pursued that into this PhD program now. Um, and I'm now in the dissertation writing stage. Um, and, you know, Frances Willard and her rhetoric of conquest is still really central to the way that I'm studying and approaching cycle touring, especially. Um, but rather than thinking of it purely within the context that I think she intended it as sort of this liberatory frame as, you know, women on bicycles being able to conquer new spaces and, and new ideas of who they might be. I'm also thinking about how she's using the word conquest and how cyclists in general are, are interacting with the idea of mastery and conquest as a kind of extension of American imperial at that time. Um, so thinking about both metaphorically and physically, literally, how cyclists are moving through sort of adventurous spaces, you know, and I'm saying this from the perspective of kind of a middle-class white 19th, you know, century bicyclist, thinking mm -hmm. about how the bicycle actually becomes a tool for extending an American civilizing mission um, and how conquest becomes understood in a slightly different way than perhaps just purely self-conquest or self-mastery or self-liberation. Wow. Did, so Frances Willard, was she using the bicycle solely as sort of a metaphor for describing this change that she wanted to see? Or what was the bicycle playing like a practical role sort of in the missions that she, in, in her, you know, in her interest in child welfare and mm -hmm. temperance, what was the bicycle also sort of physically present and playing a role in the work that she was doing? It certainly was. It was definitely both. So in the text itself, it serves as a really powerful metaphor. But if you look at, you know, I've, I've been to um, her fabulous archives in Evanston, Illinois, and you look at all these different records um, and the bicycle was central to her own sense of well-being. So she was she was quite ill in the last years of her life, and mm -hmm. she learned to ride the bicycle in her 50s, wow. just a, a few years before she died, actually. And so the bicycle for her was a really important kind of physical and mental health exercise for her. Um, but it was also something that she employed directly in some of her work. Um, so beyond it being a metaphor for, um, you know, one of, one of her favorite ways of, of describing the bicycle and its virtues is 
by linking it to sobriety, right? Remembering mm. <laughs> that what she's really doing is, is temperance reform. The bicycle, she insists, and I'm sure many of us could contest this, but she insists that the bicycle is sort of the ideal instrument for encouraging temperance because it requires sobriety in order to ride it. It requires balance. It requires a clear head and steady hands, she says. Um, so there's some truth to that, maybe. But again, I think that there are uh, lots of ways around that. But yeah, so she she literally sees the bicycle as a tool to encourage and actually require sobriety in some sense. Um, but then extending into sort of other realms of her of her um, reform efforts, she actually her first bicycle she names Gladys, and um, it shows up again later in some interviews that she gives. She ends up giving Gladys away to one of her female servants um, as a way to sort of encourage that that a person of the working class to have access to greater mobility. So again, I mean, there's some class politics there that I think are more complicated than she allows for. Um, but she certainly envisions the bicycle and uses the bicycle and, you know, gives the bicycle on to people in, a, in an effort that is pretty consistently um, tied to a sense of liberation. That's that's certainly her position. Well, wow, I wonder what she would think about today's uh, brewery bicycle connection. Um, oh yeah, I know. I think she would not be pleased. <laughs> I think I think I, I think I have some friends that would uh, call to question her assertion about the sobriety of bicycle. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty weak claim, ultimately, yeah. <laughs> but but it, you know it functioned for her as a pretty strong metaphor at the time. <laughs> So as you as you sort of you mentioned sort of you know focusing on this word conquest and as mm -hmm. you sort of think about um, American manifest destiny, I would say you know in my in my personal experience, this this concept of manifest destiny has has become more and more uh, apparent to me as as I've I've just moved west last year. Um, I was in Memphis for about for about eighteen years and I moved out to Colorado and you know I'm not even sort of like in the full like the west, but I guess it's kind of the west. But, you know, I begin, you begin to sort of see, I think, fresher examples of where that, that manifest destiny concept and ideology sort of really has played out in how cities out here are structured and where they're located. And, uh, as I begin to sort of, you know, understand better the, the new history of the place that I'm living in, I understand, you know, the, the presence of native Americans who used to be here and where they are now as a result of this. Um, it's a concept that I'm sort of becoming more and more familiar with. So I'm, I'm can you talk just a little bit about that concept and then also sort of link it into how you're thinking about, um, you know, the role of, of bicycling within that? Mm -hmm, sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think you've, you've said a lot of it already. The idea of manifest destiny at the time of being this kind of limitless expansion, you know, expanding the American territory, um, both physically and also ideologically. So, you know, conquering the land, moving into the space, settling that land. I mean, these are sort of, this is the, the foundation of, of settler colonialism, which of course is the cause of massive American Indian massacres and genocide. Um, and the foundation of American industry, you know, so these things go hand in hand. And what's so interesting about the bicycle in this whole conversation is that the bicycle really at the time, you know, in the 1890s during that bicycle boom um, was the symbol of modernity. You know, it was sort of cutting edge technology and it would not have been possible without American industrialization. So, you know, here you have this instrument of modernity and technology that is allowing people mostly from urban 
urban cities on the East Coast, although that kind of grows as the cities grow and, and creep west. But you have this instrument of mobility, technology, modernity that's able to sort of move west with the expansion of that frontier. By the 1890s, the frontier was sort of theoretically officially closed. Um, you know, we had sort of expanded the length of the continent at the time, though, of course, there are still lots and lots of disputes and wars and fighting that go on um, um, throughout the, that decade and into the into the 20th century. Um, but the bicycle is, I think, imagined in some way as a way to access the untouched corners of this newly settled frontier. Um, and then the bicycle also becomes an instrument for worldwide travel. I mean, of course, we a lot of us know about Thomas Stevens around the world. That was earlier than the era that I'm looking at. But there were, you know, highly publicized worldwide bicycle tours or long distance tours that that were, you know, being um, sort of public, published in newspapers and um, celebrated as a way to, you know, enter darkest Africa, you know, I'm saying in air quotes, or the sort of depths of Asia. So these are, the bicycle is a way that um, allows the adventurous Americans and Europeans mostly to penetrate the heart of these kind of exotic spaces. So that, you know, European imperialism is, is healthy at this particular particular moment. And European writers, American writers, I think, are sort of part of um, an impulse to modernize, to civilize, to expand, and to move through spaces. Obviously, these bicyclists are not, you know, they're, they're not part of um, an actual war machine. They're not going in and actually conquering and taking land. But I, I think that the, the fact that the bicycle is that important and powerful symbol of American and European European technology, industry, and modernity. Um, there's something really important about the fact that that bicycle is allowed to move through untouched, quote unquote, spaces. So I think it's, you know, part of a global conquest, a global expansion, a global kind of intrusion, invasion, as much as it is part of an ideological American manifest destiny and, and will to expand and move through these different territories. That's part of how I'm seeing it. It's sort of a, a both rhetorical and then also a literal sense. Yeah. It, you know, as I hear you sort of describe it that way, if I could, if I could think about sort of today's modern bicycling industry, and if I actually, if I could expand that to sort of think about the outdoor adventure industry today, mm -hmm. right. As they market, as they market their goods and they market these experiences around it, I think exactly what you were just saying sort of translates directly to what's what sort of what's continues to be happening today in terms of selling this experience of, you know, conquering a mountain or swimming the longest distance or right. selling this individual freedom that sort of exists with being outside and in nature. Mm -hmm. um, as I think about what's about critiques of that kind of, um, that kind of, uh, marketing and that kind of communication today, as I think about, you know, 
the critiques are that, you know, advertisers are portraying a certain group of people or playing to particular, you know, classes or races or income levels of people to sell these kinds of experiences at the expense of others. Mm-hmm. Was, was that same kind of um, notion also present in the 1890s? Like, were, were there people who bicycling was being sold this this symbol of freedom and liberation? And, and, and were there people that were left behind in that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the sort of adventure industry I think that we see today is quite a bit larger. I would I would hazard to guess than it was then. Um, there's certainly a different aesthetic appreciation I think for what's happening here now. But absolutely, yes. So. Um, you know, at, at this particular moment, this 1890s decade, um, there's a real concern among middle class men primarily about their manliness, about sort of the vitality of masculinity. A lot of these men have have switched over from being self-employed and from engaging in more physical labor to now being clerks and being office workers. Um Many of them are living in cities where there's less access to sort of the raw wilderness, you know. Um, and so the bicycle does become a way to access nature and access the wilderness and access a kind of physicality and muscularity that has been harder to ach- to attain for a lot of these kind of middle class male workers. Um so I think I think that you do see that. I mean, for example, there's one fantastic book um, <laughs> that is incredibly sort of complicated when when read with today's lenses, of course. But these two young college-educated men from the Midwest, yeah, Zach Laban and Alan, were these two cyclists who graduated from Washington University in St. Louis and decided they were going to go on a bicycle tour around the world. This is in 1894. And they they go off, they write a travelogue about their experience in Asia. And when you read it, it, it makes a lot of sense, sort of, you, you figure out the context of where these men are in terms of their own masculinity, their own sense of self. It's really important, it becomes clear when you read between the lines, it's very important that they um, kind of establish themselves as worldly, as um, of a particular kind of class and education, but also as really able to sort of fend for themselves and to be part of nature and to exemplify a certain kind of manliness. Um, so that was something that they were able to do through the bicycle. And I think that that is definitely, I mean, these, these, these guys would certainly fit well into any North Face or REI catalog, right? I mean, that's sort of, <laughs> yeah. they're like, they're like the, the REI poster children of that era. Um, for women, I think it was a little bit different. There was a lot more emphasis on women being able to ride the bicycle and um, maintain a certain kind of femininity or ladylike quality, um, you know, certainly being able to achieve new kinds of rights, new kinds of um, access to public space. I mean, you sort of see the connotations with what's called the new woman and the bicycle as being sort of fused. You know, the the bicycle is the new woman. The new woman is the bicycle. Um, But that new woman is still sort of bound by certain kinds of civilization and respectability. That said, there are a couple of women who um, are riding around the world and are being simultaneously praised and criticized for it. So that kind of adventure, the the new woman on the bicycle, 
as a global tourist, that kind of adventure is understood less in terms of adventure and more in terms of civilization. So her, her mission on the bicycle, I would argue, is more tied to the American or European woman's ability to enter new sort of previously, quote unquote, uncivilized spaces and make them civilized, make them modern, make them that kind of way. Whereas the men that are cycling are, are less charged with that kind of responsibility and are, are more there in order to experience um, the wilderness, experience the sort of the rawness of an exotic nature. Well, I mean, I've got to say for the two college-educated men to, to in the 1890s to think about packing up everything and going on a bicycle tour around the world. Yeah. I I would I would give them all the manual all the manliness. I feel like <laughs> I feel like, you know, like you could do that today, right? Because of the internet and you could you could know that you were going to go where you were going to go. Um but in the 1890s, like you just sort of right got on a boat and hoped that you were going to make it to the well, next place? yes and no. I mean, that's certainly the story. They would love to hear you say this. Yeah. They think that that's absolutely <laughs> what they were doing. But no, not quite. I mean, part of part of the unspoken pieces of their adventure is that they, they were men of means. They had money. They had contacts in important cities. Um, and they were able to sort of buy what they needed when they needed. When their bicycles broke, they kind of hunkered down for a while and chilled out with some important ambassadors in whatever city they were in, and they were able to have audience with important dignitaries and politicians. So they, they had a lot of support in that way. Um, they were also often accompanied by locals who were their guides and who often carried a lot of their stuff, nice. right? So they, <laughs> so they're, they're, they're sort of, they're leaving out some of the details about the sag wagon and about their, their particular guides. Um, I, I think one of my favorite passages in, in the travelogue that they write about their time in Asia is um, they are, they, they, they ditch their bicycles for a time and they're hiking for a little while and they are intent on climbing this one mountain. And I wish I remembered, it's been a while since I've read this book, but um, this particular mountain that they are determined to reach the top of. And they're with, they're with local guides during this climbing. And yet the way that they write about it, they write about their climb as if they are the first people to ever have summited this mountain. <laughs> so you know, I think it's just important to remember the context through which, you know, we're living this history and understanding this is a particular perspective. You know, the authors of this travelogue get to determine how we understand their journey and how we understand their masculinity. But of course, there's so many layers and a lot of them incredibly complicated in terms of the um, the the racial politics, class politics, the sort of globalization, beginnings of globalization and kind of imperial histories to these spaces, they need to be considered in order to fully understand what these journeys looked like and how they were experienced by both locals and by the cyclists. Yeah, I feel less bad now. Thank you for explaining <laughs> that. I, I was, I, as you were sort of first doing it, I was having like a small anxiety attack about thinking 
you know, the, in that period of time, if I was going to go on a bicycle trip around the world that, you know, I'd make it like 20 feet and would just disappear. (laughs) But now that you explained it that way, I'm like, Oh yeah, you know, screw screw those guys. Um, there are ways around it. There are always ways. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you were just mentioning sort of the role of bicycling for, you know, sort of, uh, of women as sort of as a contrast to the, to the two gentlemen riding, riding around the world. And you mentioned something about, the bicycle being used as a tool to per, to per, to bring um, and I'm, maybe I'm paraphrasing this wrong so correct please correct me but maintain society sort of in sort of areas or parts of town or parts of cities or parts of the country where civilization wasn't sort of seen as it wasn't seen as being a civilized place and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering you know is are is there any parallel to to that? Were, were these was was the bicycle back then? Were these the were these the first gentrifiers in the hmm. country? Was the, was, <laughs> was this the early sort of enclave to some of the issues that we're dealing with today? Hmm, that's an interesting way of putting it. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's the way that I would phrase it. Though I'm not sure I want to dispute it either. <laughs> um, maybe. I mean, maybe. And I, I think that there are some important similarities. So yes, in that the way that I think that I would phrase it for this particular time period is I think that they were charged, especially the women, but women and men both um, were charged with the kind of um, responsibility is the wrong word because I think it was actually quite irresponsible, but I think that they were charged with the task of quote unquote civilizing some of the spaces that they went into. So, you know, I think that the way that I'm using the word civilizing is, is, um, um, not celebratory. Right. And, and I think that we can understand some of the same connotations around disrupting culture, um, in the way that gentrification can disrupt neighborhoods and can disrupt populations. Um, the, this kind of civilizing mission that the bicycle makes popular for certain kinds of touring cyclists is a disruption to space. It's a temporary disruption. At least the touring cyclists are a temporary disruption because they're not settling in the way that sort of gentrifiers are, are settling in new neighborhoods, new to them neighborhoods. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, for, for, for commuting cyclists and for cyclists that were interested in sort of weekend tours and leisure riding and picnics and those kinds of things, it certainly made um, a certain kind of suburbanization more possible. I mean, we think of suburbanization as being linked to car travel, but um, suburbanization was really sort of started in some ways through bicycle travel as well. You know, distances shrink with greater mobility and the bicycle is sort of the first, the first personal form of transportation. Um, so in some ways on a smaller scale, when we don't think about the touring cyclists exactly, and their sort of global civilizing mission, that doesn't seem to be as related to sort of gentrification as maybe some of the smaller scale commuting and leisure cyclists that are remaining within the urban centers, um, or just outside of them and finding new ways to explore different neighborhoods and to sort of, um, I don't know, to make them palatable. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the early cyclists that were doing these weekend picnics and, and weekend tours, um, were looking for an escape from dense urban centers. And 
the relationship that some of the texts describe between their rural neighbors and these urban cyclists is sort of interesting. It does become, you know, just like many other tourist relationships, tourist economies, there's this sort of strange interdependence that develops that you could argue either way is both damaging and incredibly helpful to some of these communities that hadn't really been touched by um, by the economies of, of the urban centers as as much or in that same exact way. So there, there are lots of new businesses that spring up that are specifically designed to cater to cyclists that are there for the weekend. Um, and just as soon as the boom ends at the end of the 1890s, those businesses kind of go bust, or a lot of them do. So, you know, there's, there's something there, I think, that might be a comparison. It's not perfect, but, you know, the idea of a, of a disruption that is simultaneously kind of designed to make certain communities dependent on newcomers. I think that there's a connection there, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Where where are people of color in all of this, Christine? Are they, um, you know, and you could probably speak, there's probably a difference between uh, people of color that are that are men and women, but how are they experiencing the bicycle um, during this period of time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I've done some research into certain communities of color, particularly black cyclists in urban centers. Um, and it's pretty difficult um, to find a lot of information. Most of the information that I find is through um, African-American newspapers that are that are written at the time. So the newspapers in general are sort of full of bicycle advertisements and full of articles arguing the merits and the harms of bicycling during this era. And um, African-American newspapers are not, you know, missing this, right? They're, they're also right, right along in step there. So, for example, um, I did a, quite a bit of research into one African-American newspaper called the Washington Bee, based in Washington, D.C., um, and there's a lot of, of excitement and concern about bicycling in this particular sort of middle-class, upwardly mobile African-American community in Washington, D.C. So, uh, you know, kind of thinking about who, who the potential riders are, bicycles were incredibly expensive at the beginning of the 1890s, and they became increasingly less so toward the end as as the boom kind of had its last its last legs and there became a secondhand bicycle market and different ways of purchasing and installments and things like that. So the bicycle became more affordable, but it was always it was always a pretty important big purchase. Um, and so just thinking demographically, people of color had a lot less access to wealth than white people. And as a result, sort of directly, there were fewer cyclists of color than there were white middle class male cyclists. Um, that said, I think because the bicycle was such a pervasive and powerful symbol of modernity um, and a certain kind of progress, there was a lot of excitement among some communities of color around accessing the bicycle as a way to signal their participation in a modern progressive society. Um, so it was, you know, it was a status symbol in a, in a big way. Um, 
And it came with some sort of interesting conflicts within these communities of color. So there was a lot of tension around, you know, largely not not just in communities of color, but sort of I think it gets intensified within communities that are already sort of the most oppressed and persecuted and under a watchful kind of eye about whether the bicycle is a vice or a virtue. You know, so particularly around women's bodies, there's a lot of conversation about whether the bicycle is going to ruin you or whether it's it's going to sort of improve you and be a, a kind of beacon of health and mm. good moral character. Um, so there's all kinds of conflicting articles that I'm seeing throughout the 1890s in these African-American newspapers, as I'm seeing in all kinds of other newspapers, too. Um, there was um, an important moment in... 1894, when the League of American Wheelmen, which was the largest, um, the largest organization of bicycle riders, sort of nationally, they instituted a color bar in 1894, formally banning any riders of color from gaining access to mm -hmm. membership. That was a really big deal, um, and it it sparked a lot of protests from cyclists of color in urban eastern cities mostly. So Washington, D.C., New York, Boston, these were all places where you saw a lot of resistance to that color bar. Um, so, for example, um, you might have heard of Kitty Knox, who was a biracial cyclist from Boston, who was a card-carrying member of the LAW. And um, she went to the first meet in 1895, right after the color bar was formally instituted, to protest it, to sort of show up and resist it. And she had a lot of support from her white league members from the Boston area, where the, where the league was actually headquartered. Um, but there was a lot of sort of newspaper coverage about her and, you know, is this going to change the league's mind? No, it didn't. Um, she also wasn't totally banned from the premises. So there was some sort of blurriness there. Um, but that kind of raised a big, a big sort of momentary kind of um, conflict in that in that space. And then in Washington, D.C., as I kind of was able to trace through the Washington Bee as, as one primary source, um, there was a lot of kind of slow-growing momentum and resistance to the color bar. So there was at one point a desire to, um, to create their own sort of national league of, you know, quote-unquote colored wheelmen. Mm. Um, and so that, that became sort of a vision for some cyclists of color in Washington, D.C. for a little while. It ended up not becoming a national organization, but there were several um, clubs that catered to cyclists of color that kind of became a more unified group in Washington, D.C. as a result of being barred from the LAW. And they had parades and they had protests, and it was written about in the Washington Post and in these kind of more localized newspapers as well. So, there, you know, th there was conversation, there was this visibility. I think one of the more interesting things about the relationship between the bicycle and wheelmen of color at the time is that because it becomes a kind of status symbol for particular for particular kinds of black cyclists, it gets associated with a kind of respectability politics that I think is, you know, just important to acknowledge in its complexity, you know. So you have here the bicycle as as being itself a contested item, a, a contested sort of technology, whether or not it is actually a symbol of respectability or not. But, you know, if, if you can kind of understand, if, you, if you're if you on the side of, yes, it is a kind of a respectable and, um, 
and in, indeed actually liberatory kind of technology, then the question is, how do we utilize that toward a particular kind of respectability for women of color, um, which unfortunately gets kind of steeped in all kinds of other um sort of white supremacist and middle-class values about what it means to be a citizen, you know? So you have these women of color who are using the bicycle as a status symbol to gain access to what ultimately, from my perspective, you know, from here and now, is in some way participating in a sort of racist and classist idea of what it means to be fully human. Um, so this isn't to say that the cyclists of color that were avid, you know, bicycle riders were willingly or knowingly participating in a kind of racist project. But, um, you know, if you kind of look in hindsight, you can see the ways in which the bicycle as this kind of symbol of technology, of modernity, of a certain kind of white civilizing mission, um, it, you know, it, it just becomes a complicated relationship, I guess I would say. And... I think it needs a lot more, a lot more investigation and, and research. And I think that continues even for today. There was a, there's an article that I just finished reading that was in um, the latest American quarterly journal, which is the American studies sort of department or um, di discipline journal written by John Bloom. And he is writing about the about cyclists of color in Washington, D.C. in the late 1960s and 1970s and the way that that the bicycle actually becomes a way to regulate black bodies in Washington, D.C. in the 60s and 70s. So there's a way in which this sort of the bicycle becomes simultaneously a tool for liberation and respectability and citizenship, but it also becomes a way to regulate mobility and the movement of black bodies or, you know, undesired bodies through spaces, you know. So I think it, I think it's a complicated relationship in lots and lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad I'm glad you answered that. I was I was going to ask that question. So I'm glad you answered it before I asked it. We are we're vibing here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was I was just in Memphis. And I, what I was just thinking about was I was spending some time with some friends in Memphis who are also historians of like, the civil rights movement and the history and the development of Memphis. And uh, we were talking about the prevalence of black wealth in the South in the, in this period of time, the 1890s, you know, the, one of the, the country's first black millionaires, Robert Church is, is from Memphis and lives in Memphis after the city is wiped out by a, a yellow fever epidemic in the late 1800s. He, he purchases the first bonds that, that reinstate the city charter for the city of Memphis. And Robert Church becomes the symbol of, of black wealth and power in the South, you know, which is, which is, which is a pretty new concept in, you know, following the civil war process and, you know, the ending of the civil war and the process of reconstruction rather. And, you know, I was just thinking about, I, I don't know. And it feels like, it feels like there's probably even some more to dive into as we think about, you know, where different black communities were during this period of time mm -hmm. and what, in the degree to which, you know, your questions about, you know, how, 
what, what, what role bicycling and mobility and transportation were playing in terms of achieving sort of, you know, a, a, an identity of civilization as defined by white wealthy people at the time mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. maybe places in the South. I, w- I just wonder if there's a difference between, you know, who was sort of setting the stage for that and whether or not the same kind of thing was happening uh, in the Deep South at the same time. Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't know. I mean, I I do know through the research I've done in Washington, D.C., that, you know, just because newspapers at this time were mostly reprinting articles that were found from other newspapers. It was kind of like an, an aggregated sort of way of, of reporting on news. So based on on where I'm seeing articles sort of first published and then republished in the Washington Bee, there seems to be a pretty important um, cycling community in New Orleans at the time. Um, and, you know, so you, I, I think there, there are ways to sort of dig and find different pockets. Um, but that's not something that, I, that I've really looked into yet or something that I've come across naturally or just sort of in my, in my search. Um, but I'm sure that, that there were sort of similar patterns of, you know, just the, the, the sort of fraught nature of what it means, exactly as you were saying, what it means to access the certain version of citizenship that affords one power, you know. And I think that, that what's so interesting to me about my research with bicycling is that the bicycle actually becomes a really important measure to understand where somebody fits in that hierarchy of power and civilization and sort of good citizenship. Depending on who you ask, you fall in a different place. But the bicycle seems to be a really important signal regardless of where you think it actually belongs. It's it's mentioned frequently as a way to understand um you know, where, where you are in terms of your class politics, your access to different spaces, your access to wealth, to clubs, to communities. Clubs were an important way to identify your relationship to citizenship. Um, so a lot of people were forming bicycle clubs as a way to sort of insist upon their right to be in a particular space, to have access to particular kinds of leisure activities to assert a a progressive citizenship in new ways. And that was true for cyclists of color. That was true for women. That was true for all different kinds of ethnic minorities in urban centers, um, as it was also true for the sort of first um, members of the most exclusive clubs, which were, of course, wealthy and middle-class white men. Just as a, a wrap-up question here, Christine. So all of this study, all of this analysis of uh, of the early days of cycling, understanding the ways in which cycling is both a metaphor and a, and a practical tool for social change, and we could talk about whether social change in a good or bad context. What what's the lessons for all of this for today's modern? cyclist uh, and modern cycling advocates what what are is are we are we are we doomed to repeat history um, or, <laughs> or are there lessons here that we can learn uh, and better incorporate into what the work that we're doing today yeah so you know this is something I think about a lot as somebody who you know in my work life I'm really focused on on what's happening in terms of 
important racial class gender dynamics in early cycling. And then of course I am today myself an avid cyclist and touring cyclist. So I, I think a lot about the responsibility that I have to the research that I'm doing and to sort of implementing or not implementing some of what um, I'm studying in my daily practice as a cyclist. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that what I really want to do, I mean, the, the, the takeaway that I think is important in the research that I'm doing is to sort of complicate the idea that cycling equals mobility equals liberation. I think that that's a really simple equation and it feels really good. And there are a lot of places where that's true. You know, um, but I think that there are also a lot of places where that's not true or that isn't the whole truth. Um, and so just thinking about when we're talking about cycling as a new form of mobility, as a way to access new kinds of liberation or empowerment, whether it's metaphorical or physical or whatever, I think it's really crucial to also be thinking about what does it mean for particular bodies to be moving through particular spaces, and, you know, that that really comes down to how are we engaging and interacting with our surroundings? How are we thinking about the privileges that we carry as sort of leisure cyclists versus commuting cyclists versus racing cyclists, right? We have, I, I mean, cycling today and also back in the 1890s, there were lots and lots of different kinds of cyclists, different identities, different hats people could wear. We often have multiple hats we trade them at different times and they have the different connotations and different access to different kinds of power and privilege. So I think, you know, as we're, as we're trading hats and as we're thinking about what kind of cyclists we're going to be where and when, I think it's really crucial to be thinking about, okay, so what kind of power or privilege am I accessing as I'm wearing these different kinds of identities and as I'm moving through different kinds of spaces? This is true for lots of different kinds of tourism and lots of different kinds of existing in public space. We've talked about gentrification today. We've talked about cycle touring. Um, so as any kind of tourist, I feel, needs to sort of take responsibility for what it means to be a tourist in a new place, that's also obviously true for cycle touring. Um, just as I think it's important that we have really serious conversations about what it means to be gentrifying different kinds of neighborhoods, I think that that's also true to be thinking about when we think about how we're engaging with new bicycle infrastructure, how we're including or not including including or listening to or not listening to all of the different constituents and people that have access to the spaces that we want to kind of use for cycling. Um, I think there are really, really powerful ways that we can do this in ways that can be responsible in ways that can really um, be that, that kind that, that sort of that kind of liberation and, you know, I hesitate to say, but even the kind of conquest that Francis Willard imagined in all its glory, um, but context, you know, conquest has multiple connotations, and I guess I'm just trying to emphasize that that those multiple connotations are always at play. So it's important that we think about the different ways that conquest, that empowerment, that liberation is or isn't kind of being enacted um, when we choose to engage with with cycling. I'm not going to stop biking. You know, I mean, I, I love biking. That's a huge part of who I am and my identity. I get tremendous joy from that. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to think about 
all of the different layers and the context that my biking kind of wears that I wear when I put on my goofy spandex and I get on my dumb golden tandem and I bike across the United States, that means something to me. And I kind of get to think about what it means to me, but it also means something to every single person that I pass on the road. Man, this has been great, Christine. I'm so sad that Sarah wasn't here, but she's just going to have to listen like the rest of the listeners are um, and enjoy it from afar. Uh, Just as a final note, I want you to tell me, when I was just just doing a bit of Googling before uh, our talk to come up with some things to talk about, I noticed that there's an international cycling history conference. There certainly is. I had no idea. And, and not, <laughs> not not just there is one, but it's been going for like 28 or 29 years. Yeah. It's got a long following. It's a pretty interesting space. Uh-huh. As I was reading through the topics of discussion at these, and I saw that you had presented at, at the last one, but as I was as I was reading through the topics here, I, I just sort of imagined, is everybody just wearing like tweed jackets to this? <laughs> Yeah, I think you got it about right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot of like really nice mustaches on men. Yeah. Uh, petticoats on the women and lots of tweets. <laughs> the whole thing is a museum. It's kind of an amazing place. I've only been to one so far, but I definitely plan on going back. They hold it at different cities, different sort of significant cycling cities every yeah. year. Um, and a lot of the people that come who've been coming for years and years have their own personal cycling collections. And so <laughs> there's all kinds of paraphernalia that gets that that comes and the room where this conference is held is lined with old fantastic bicycles and different specimens and photographs and yeah it's it's quite a trip <laughs> nice nice yeah I, i'm i'm intrigued and i see 20 2018s in london so it may not be you know a, a bad thing to have to take a trip no to london. yeah <laughs> gotta get on that it's a good way to travel absolutely <laughs> hey thank you so much for taking time this morning this has been well, thanks really, for having really interesting me. uh i'm gonna we're gonna continue to follow you and if you ever have uh any new publications or anything happening in your life that's significant you want to come on and talk about it with us please let us know we'd be happy to have you back on well, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. It's been great talking with you. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OAM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, the Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.